Glad you're here this morning. Let's pray once again and we'll start. Father God, we love you. Lord, you, Jesus, you said the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. You would, and he will proclaim the Savior, Jesus Christ, to us. But you don't stop there. The Holy Spirit is the mechanism that we may live holy lives if we yield to him, Father. Lord, give us willing hearts to yield to you. No matter what comes our way, governments or rulers, Lord, may we yield to you and walk uprightly before you, Father. So we welcome you here to reveal your heart, to reveal your truth, and give us grace to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now remember, as we make our way through chapter 12, through the rest of Romans, it's a description we have to understand of the response that God wants us to have. He speaks of the kind of life that we are to live in light of his mercies, in light of the mercies of God that he has given us. All that is ours, our salvation that we have, all of the great and precious promises that are in Christ Jesus that belongs to us, in light of all those things, and there's abundance of them, God calls us to respond. And once again, he's not asking us to respond as a favor, but he's commanding us to respond as an obligation to that. And it's interesting, as Paul starts chapter 13, he says, let every soul be subject, hupotazo, to be up under, under the dominion or rule to the governing authorities. He goes on to tell us, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. He rules sovereignly over everything. But the question is, why would Paul begin to speak about governing authorities? He's just spoke about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. This is how you walk in love to those things. And then he begins to talk about the grace of God that gives us the ability to do those things. And then all of a, of a sudden, he makes a right turn and begins to talk about governing authorities and how the believers should live under those things. A lot of people, a lot of very good theologians think that uh, this, these verses, chapter 13, 1 through 7, are redacted, that someone just added them. But if we do a deep dive and look into the, the context of how it goes together, we'll understand that, of course, the Holy Spirit put it exactly where he wanted to put it there. We just finished a wonderful Thanksgiving season. And we all know that there's two things that are for, forbidden to talk about around the Thanksgiving table. One is religion. And the other is government things. But I guess the Holy Spirit, he didn't get the memo on these things. And it seems as if Paul comes out of the clear with this topic about both of these. And what the Holy Spirit is wanting us as believers to know, to take note of, to be on guard of, is our attitude as it concerns government. 
there would be real confusion if you look back to that first century church. 120 Jews, I would think. A Jewish church starts this. And then all of a sudden, when Peter gives his first sermons, Gentiles come into the church. 2,000, 3,000. The next time Peter speaks, 5,000 God-fearers and Gentiles come into the church. And as the Gentiles are coming into the church, remember, Paul writes this epistle when Caesar Nero was on the throne. He tells us all of these things, how we should submit when a dictator, when a tyrant is on the throne. And so if you know anything about the Jewish culture and Judaism, every time someone would come in and take over against the Jews, and that would only happen when they would turn their backs on Yahweh God and apostasy whether it was the Romans, whether it was the Babylonians, they would always fight against the government. Hostility towards the government, whatever government it would be. And so as these Gentiles come in, the Holy Spirit begins to speak to Paul, and they're looking at at the, the Jewish culture and how they're acting towards government. What should it be? Should we rebel also? Should we follow their footsteps also and be hostile towards the government? And the Holy Spirit begins to speak to Paul. And that's not the way it should be. And he begins to tell us once again in verse 1, the Holy Spirit comes with all the truth. The Bible says when the Spirit speaks, he speaks of truth. And that's what we have today. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. In the first four verses, we'll see by God, of God, from God, God ministers. He's involved. He's pulling the strings on everything. So let me read those four uh, verses. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. He's not speaking about the Marvel Avengers there. Once again, Paul writes this when Caesar Nero was on the throne. And a number of years before this, the early church was being ruled under a dictatorship. 
And he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Paul is saying that human government is appointed by God. I like the, the uh, proverb that Mark said. The, 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 the heart of God, the, the king's heart is in the hand of God and he turns them which way he wants them to go. Daniel puts it this way in Daniel 4, 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, the watchers, the holy ones, the holy angels, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know, that's all of us, that the most high rules, as Dan told us, in the kingdoms of men, gives it to whomever he will and sets over them the basis of the lowest of men's because that's what suits God's purposes at that time. Jesus tells a parable about the marriage supper and those that were sent to invite people to come. Remember, they were shamefully treated and beaten. Then Jesus says, what shall that king do then that sent his servants? He goes on to say, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, this was a parable about Jerusalem. And in the parable, the army was the Romans under Titus Vespasian. And he says, they are the king's army, speaking of God himself. Those are his armies in that parable. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, when he, when he goes in there and, and takes over uh, Jerusalem, God calls Nebuchadnezzar the servant of the Lord. And he comes to destroy Jerusalem once again because of their sin. America is a blessed nation. It was founded under Judeo-Christian ethics, we've been blessed. But as a whole, we are turning away or have already turned away from God. And in my opinion, the only reason all of his wrath hasn't just been poured out on us is because of Israel and the Jewish people that we've been faithful, even our government has been faithful to them, but that's even beginning to wane. So God has an angle, a viewpoint on human government. We might look at all of the things that's going on in the world today, the news and everything, and we might think everything is out of control, but it's not. I'm amazed that 18 to 30 people can go into a high-end business in broad daylight and just smash and grab, and nothing happens at the time. I'm blown away that a woman, once again, on a subway, while she's being raped, they're recording it, and no one does anything to help her. It looks like things are out of control, but they aren't. Everything is going exactly the way the Lord wants it. The scripture tells us that. 
And the picture that precedes the coming of Christ is forming in our sight, in, in, in our very eyes. We have to understand you guys. We're passing through here. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. That's where we belong. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's for the believer. If you're an unbeliever, your citizenship is still down here. You need to get your ticket. You need to be born again so you can be a citizen of heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So that should orientate us, bring us back into focus when we get out of focus. Really, we're truly not Democrats or Republicans. If you think about it, we're truly independents. We're independents because, once again, our citizenship is in heaven. And in that sense, that political plots and schemes that goes on down here. But our view and our approach to everything that happens down here should be a biblical approach. Morality should be important to us. Life should be sacred to all of us. It doesn't have anything to do with the different parties. Our citizenship is in heaven. As we look at the human government all around us, 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us this, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men or kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And once again, Caesar Nero was on the throne when Paul wrote this. It hasn't gotten that bad yet. It's getting bad, but it's not that bad. That's the believer's calling. We are passing through here, you guys. We're not staying here. So in regards to civil civil governments, if you're going to present your bodies as the Lord has commanded us as living sacrifices and give yourself wholly to the Lord, he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And that's the present tense that appointed by God. They have been appointed they remain appointed, and they will continue to be appointed by God. That's good news. No matter who sits on the throne as president, God allowed it. He did more than allowed it. He appointed it. And so what should that do for every believer? That should give us peace, that the Lord is in control that nothing passes by him. He didn't wink or fall asleep and something happened that he didn't want to happen. Truly, 
as Dan said, in general, the United States of America, we get the king that we deserve sometimes. And God is still gracious. He's going to take care of his children. Human government, we have to understand, is established by God. It began, it was established in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. Remember that? When God gave man the right, the right to exercise capital punishment, to bear the sword, that is the establishment of government. One life can govern, hopefully, justly over another life. We shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't happen in our society, in our culture, because there's, they're calling good evil now these days, and evil good, but God once again is in control. He says the authorities that are exist are appointed by God. But then I begin to think about what about civil disobedience? What do we do with that? Well, it depends on what you call civil disobedience. If you're speaking of civil intimidation or civil rioting, like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, burning cities to the ground and destroying things, I don't find that anywhere in the scriptures where God condones things like that. That kind of behavior, you won't find it anywhere by believers. We were seeing a lot of those things happen a couple of years or last year ago. Paul says this. He tells us to submit to the powers that be. And remember, Paul himself, he ends up in prison for not submitting to the powers that be. That's how Dr. Martin Luther King and those who followed him made a change. Nonviolent protest. God in the midst of that, doing the right thing, not destroying things, but praying and asking the Lord, if you're righteous and if you're just, and if we're doing the righteous thing, and if we're going about it the just and righteous way, Lord, do something. And that's what he did. And that's the way it will always happen. A change will be made. Peter himself, remember, he was crucified upside down by the Roman government. And this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We're here to bring glory to him, that his fame may be greater through us, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Even now, we have tremendous freedoms. In this country, we should be praying, and I'm the first one to say that for myself because if I'm being honest, I have a hard time at times 
but I find myself by the power of the Holy Spirit doing it, praying for the president on a daily basis. God allowed him once again to be where he is. And if there is not a revival in America, it's not the government's fault. It's the church's fault. We need to be seeking and praying for revival. That the government has nothing to do with that. We still have the freedom to share Christ on these streets. We still have the freedom to knock on doors for Christ. Nothing is stopping us from doing those things but inconvenience. And we shouldn't let that get in the way. Verse 2, he says, Therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. There needs to be order amongst human beings. God is a God of order. That's why he allowed governments to be set up, because mankind, we all know, is fallen. And not only are we fallen, we are sinful creatures. I know that paying taxes, as Mark said, is a bummer at times. But I'm glad we have the money to pay for the police. We need the police. Imagine if there was no police. Well, the days that we are living in, there's no need to imagine. Just look at Chicago. It's pitiful. San Francisco, Seattle, Philadelphia, and coming to a city near you if we're not praying and seeking the Lord and praying for our leaders. What Paul is saying is, if you're going to fight against the righteous laws of the land and you're going to rebel against those things and then they come down on you in judgment, then you've brought it on yourself. He tells us in verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. When we do what is good, obeying the laws of the land, what happens? You live a life that's free of fear as it relates to the governing authorities anyway. As I was thinking of an example, I thought of one. Pulling out from Golden Parkway, making a left, going headed towards Spout Springs. I don't know why they built that stretch of road like that. It just tempts you to go fast. I mean, it's hard. I, I, I go there a lot. And every time, even in my 1990 truck, I want to just fly down that highway. It tempts you. And I'm thinking, all of a sudden, one morning, we're driving, taking our time, going. I think the speed limit is 45, and I'm going 45. And I look to the left, and there's a flowery branch cop. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? 
no, no problem to me. I'm going the speed limit. But what about that morning I'm late for work? And I'm headed to Spout Spring on Friendship. And instead of going 45, I really like to go 65. Now, I know nothing about this. My wife tells me these things. And as I'm going 65, I spot that flowery branch policeman. And as I go by him, what are we doing? We're looking in the rearview mirror and we're praying, Lord, please forgive me. Lord, please don't let him pull out. Lord, if you give me one more chance, I will never do this again. Terror grips us because we don't want a ticket. We don't want to have to pay that. We don't want our insurance rate to go up, all of those things. But if we would only obeyed the speed limit, all of that fear wouldn't be there. That's what Paul is saying here. If we do the right thing, follow the law of the land, he says, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That is the signature concern of human government, the right to execute the death penalty and more other things. But the big thing is the death penalty. Remember when Rome took that power away from, from, from the Hebrews, from the Jews? That's why they pitched that fit. Th their government was gone. That is the basis of human government. I know people may not agree with me. They may disagree with capital punishment. But in the scripture, that was the basis for it. It's instituted by God. Are we more compassionate than he? Are we more merciful than he? Are we more long-suffering than God? Are we even more loving than God? I don't think so. In my humble opinion, that's one of the reasons there is no deterrent for high-handed crimes today. Now, when people murder someone, kidnap someone, all of those brutal school shootings, well, we'll just put them away for the rest of their lives. And if you live long enough, they get out anyway. Ecclesiastes has something to say about that. The Holy Spirit says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. That's what's happening all in our country today. There's no consequences for sin. If I was an unbeliever, when I was an unbeliever, I picked the wrong time to be an unbeliever. I should, I, if the things that I did, I should have been doing it today because I could get away with everything. But not 20 and 25 years ago, you couldn't get away with anything. And I understand why now. I understand why the government is here. And I understand why crime is running rampant. Because there's no consequences to sin, to crime. The Holy Spirit says, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5, therefore, understanding these things, you must be subject in submission 
not only because of wrath, the consequences of that speeding ticket you may receive, but also for the conscience sake. He is saying, we are Christians, and of all people, we should obey the laws. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't obey the law because we are afraid of getting a ticket or the consequences. We should obey the laws because they are ordained by God. And we want to honor him and love him and make him look good. I was doing a couple of commentaries and reading, and I never knew this. Tertullian said in one of his writings, he said, Rome could not exact much money from the believers because they would never go into their markets, those, idol, those temple idols to buy food because they wouldn't go in. They couldn't get their money there. But you know what? He said they, they didn't complain. And he said the reason the Roman government didn't complain because they were faithful. They got their money and more because they were faithful for paying taxes. Isn't that something? So even when the believer, we do those things, it makes God look, look good. Like I said, I was doing a lot of reading. I rem- probably about 25 years ago, before Ken Ham came on the scene, and he's doing a wonderful job, you remember this guy, Kent Hovain? I think that Kent Hovain, something like that. I was a smart dude, but he had a problem with paying taxes. And he went to prison for not paying taxes. He's out now. I guess he's doing okay. I think he lives in Florida. But my point is, God says these things. And we must obey God. And that should be our motivation to have a clear conscience. We're serving a higher purpose, and that's pleasing the Lord. And we have a role in society to please him. There are things we can never endorse, you guys. If there comes a time when, when they say we can't read our Bibles anymore, we can't preach the gospel anymore, that I can't stand up here in the pulpit and preach the word, then there's a time I'll have to go to jail. And then Brian, Pastor Brian will be up here next week. And then he'll be in jail. And then Pastor Jonathan will be up here the next week. And then he'll be in jail. And then the elders and everybody will come up here and take their turns. And we'll just have a party in the jail. That's, that's what God wants us to do. Because we're going to do those things. We're going to obey the Lord and allow the chips to fall where where they may because the Lord, he will provide and he will take care of us. Remember when uh, the religious, religious leaders, they threatened Peter and John and they said, hey, we don't want you preaching in the name of Jesus anymore. They threatened them. Acts chapter 5, 28, this is what they replied. But Peter And the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's where the road forks. It should be up to Pastor Victor if he wants to take 
the COVID shot or not. I have nothing against people taking it. That's their prerogative. That's their right. My mom has it. She should take it, especially older people. That might be a light on me. I don't know. But my point is, the government shouldn't be telling me what I can and can't do when it comes to my own body. God will stand firm. And I know people, they, they, they've talked about, I don't want to take this shot. My, I'll lose my job. And if I have to lose my job, that's what I'll do. And guess what happens? The most people who tell me they're going through those things, it comes down in the end, they didn't have to take the shot. That's a blessing to me. But you, my point is, I'm neither yay nor they. I'm saying, it's your choice. It's your body. You have to make a stand sometimes. But especially when it comes to proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter, who says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, every ordinance, for the Lord's sake. We want to make him famous, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. But if it comes to the point where government tries to supersede the divine laws, of Almighty God, we can no longer read our scriptures, they say, share Christ or teach his word. Well, for conscience sake, once again, we will let the chips fall where they may. We need to honor God. I don't think we're there yet, but I hear a lot of rumblings. I know they're wanting to start charging the taxes on the church. And I, I hear there's rumblings that they're wanting to make Scripture, some of the Scriptures, hate speech. That's ridiculous. But that's what they're wanting to do. I don't care. I've got to preach the Word. God is in control, and He will take care of us. That's what my conscience tells me. He says in verse 6, For because of this, and he, when he says this, he's speaking for conscience sake. You also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. They do continue, continuously do that. They want their money. God recognizes that to have a force available, whether it's a military force without or whether it's police force within, we need that. And so taxes are provided for those things. He says, render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Those are property taxes, income taxes. These are taxes we are supposed to pay as believers. He says, customs to whom customs, the equivalent of sale taxes. Fear to whom fear or reverence. Honor to whom honor. He's saying this is the way we should live. If we want to present, it always goes back to verses 1 and 2. If we want to present our bodies, if we truly want to present our bodies as living sacrifices, we do those things to live quiet and peaceable lives and that God has ordained the government and he wants us to do those things. I'm going to tell on myself, Real quick, where I live, 
you know, let me, real quick. My dad was the first black barber, and daddy started cutting hair in 1950-something in Gwinnett County. And he saved up his money because he used to work for General Motors. So he, after he built the building, him and his dad, Papa Tim, they built a store to cut hair. Half of the store was a barber shop. The other half was a candy store. I think it was built in 1960-something. Lydia and I, when we lived in Bethlehem, said we were going to start a ministry in Lawrenceville up at that store. Now, by this time, Daddy had, had built on, added on two more sections to this building. So we did ministry up there for about four years, and then it, it fell apart, and it's a long story how it fell apart. But since we were up there, we said, you know what? We need to fix this place up, and we'll just move up here. That's what we did. Now, from the time we were up there doing ministry until last year, I was paying like $300 property tax. That's, that's crazy. That's no money, $300. Share my heart. I get a letter in the mail. I had to double take. Your property taxes went from 300 to almost 3,000. It blew me away. I hurried up and called my friend Paul Allen, and we began to work and do things. When we went to the city, I was so upset as we were talking to the lady there, and Paul was talking, and I was listening, and I'd put my two cents in. Tears were just running down my eyes. And when I got home, I was, I was upset and mad, just being honest. From 300 to 3,000, and the Lord spoke to me. After we had did everything we could to try to get it changed, we couldn't get it changed, ended up paying the money. But my point is, as I was crying at home, the Lord says, why are you crying? I've let you skate on all this for so many years, all these things, and you got to pay your property tax." <laughs> But but just to go to the tellers that here here you go, but he broke me of that. My point is God is in control. I want to hold on to things. I mean, come on, that's a lot of money. That's a big jump <laughs> for me anyway. But we had the money to do those things, and the Lord blessed us. But still, submitting to the governing authorities, God is going to provide. And remember, he's saying, if you want to be a living sacrifice, Victor, this is what you do. That's your reasonable, I don't like the word service. He says, that's your reasonable worship unto me. I've given to you. This is the average you should be paying, and this is what you need to pay. And I did. Let's move on before I get upset and depressed. Verse 8, owe no one anything. Now, he's not saying you, you shouldn't get a mortgage on your house or if you, a, a, a car and finance it, those, those things like that. He's just saying make sure you pay your debt. Uh, I think it was Hudson Taylor and I believe Charles Spurgeon, they always paid things in cash. If we could do that, praise the Lord. But he's just saying pay your debt. Accept to love one another. We do owe one another that. 
no matter if you feel like it or not, no matter if you're feeling good or not, we owe each other to love one another. He says, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And, you know, I think sometimes we forget about, I'll say I forget about exactly what love is. Hey, how are you doing? How's everything going? What does James say? Hello, how are you doing? And be well fed and you never do anything to help your neighbor. Paraphrasing, that's, what he, that's the gist of it. So what I did in that love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, because I love some verses in King James, and I love some in the NIV, and I love some in the New King James Version. So I said, I'm just going to hodgepodge it and read it the way I like it. So just listen to this. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And you give yourself that litmus test as I read this. Love suffers long. Wow. Love suffers long. And while you're suffering, kind. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. And it's kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Does not behave rudely. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. I need the Holy Spirit. Check this out. It keeps no record of wrong. If Calvary Restored would do this, and this next one I'm about to read, oh, what sweet fellowship we would have. And then he says, the King James, thinketh no evil. I'm not just because someone did something I didn't, didn't like, or my viewpoint, or my opinion when I really don't know someone, I think this way of them. The Holy Spirit says, you sh- we should give the benefit of the doubt. We should think no evil towards anyone. Wow. But rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Always trust. I heard this, but I'm not going to believe it until it takes fruition to my eyes or to my heart. I'm not just going to go by hearsay or what someone posted or something like that. I know the character of some people and the heart of some people. That's what love is. And that's the way we should treat everyone in the body of Christ. It always protects. No, I don't believe that. Always trust, always hope, always perseveres. And then he says, love never fails. Jesus says, you will know my disciples by their love for one another. He goes on to say in the last part of verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. 
you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No inference to the Sabbath day. Don't have to keep the Sabbath day. Ours, our day in the New Testament is the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And by the way, if we have someone who wants to keep the Sabbath, you just can't say, uh, oh, I'm in the house. I can't do this. I can't do that on this day. Uh, you have to work for six days. <laughs> you have to do that if you're really keeping the Sabbath. So I'll continue. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If we really want to be what the Lord has called us, has commanded us to be, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, not crawling off that altar, the best way to stay there is to love one another. And then he says in verse 11, the Greek says, also this, an add-on. And Paul begins to be very pointed. He begins to give us exhortations relative to the return of Jesus Christ. Because he knows this, the Holy Spirit knows this. As I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice, that means I'm honoring the Lord. That means I'm walking in his grace. That means I'm walking in his love. And it can't help but to be. I'm looking for his return because Peter says those that look for his return does what? They purify themselves. So all of that has to be happening and it will happen if I just present my body a living sacrifice day in and day out. Once again, he says, if you want to be a living sacrifice and give your life completely to him, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. He gives 20 short commands and exhortations. And then he says, this is how it works in response to civil government. And it's very practical. All the way down to paying taxes, submitting to the governing authorities, if you want to be a living sacrifice. He says in verse 11, and do this knowing, and, he, and knowing is intuitively, as you do these things, because you're a believer, we know that Christ is coming. God has put, the scripture says, eternity in our hearts. Uh, Elton John has it wrong if he wrote it or whoever wrote the song, I tell you guys this all the time, the circle of life. There's no circle of life. There's a beginning and an end. And we're getting close to that end. That's what Paul wants us to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we should live knowing, he's going to tell us this, that we're getting close to the end. Remember when Jesus' disciples, they asked him the, the time of his coming? He says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. If we are watching like we should, we will take that to heart. And do this knowing the time, not chronos, chronology, uh, time after time after time, but the word is charos. 
And keros means signs that marks the time. Keros means we're getting past summer. We're getting past, I'll use this, we're getting past winter. The trees begin to bloom. We know that springtime is coming. In the fall, when the leaves are turned, have turned, and they begin to fall off, we know that winter is coming. He's saying that's keros. He's giving us signs of the end of the time. That's what he means by that. He says that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. So what that tells me, some of the church, or there may be times when the church, we go, go to sleep. I'm reminded of those 10 virgins. Five was wise, five was foolish. But they all did what? Fell asleep. Paul is exhorting us to wake up, to not even fall asleep. That's what he says here. Not to become lukewarm, not to become dull or indifferent toward the things of the Lord. Make sure our relationship with Jesus Christ is burning and burning brightly. Even though Jesus is gracious, he said a bruised reed or a smoking flax. He says, I won't even despise that. It's still something there. If you pray and ask me, I can blow on it and bring life back to it. But don't fall asleep because the king is coming. If we truly believe, if we truly believe that Jesus is coming, we should live like it. We should live like it. We shouldn't be glancing or viewing pornography. Because if we're doing that, we don't believe Jesus is coming. We shouldn't have illicit relationships. Because if we're doing that, we don't believe Jesus is coming. We shouldn't be abusing our spouses. Because if we're doing that, we don't believe Jesus is coming. Paul is saying he's coming. And if we believe he's coming, then we live like he's coming. He says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were already saved. Jesus Christ said the kingdom of God is within you. So what is he speaking about? Well, he's speaking about, even though we're in that new realm, I'll go all the way back to Romans 6. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light in which the son you he loves. Jesus Christ is the head. But what do we still have here? We still have these mortal bodies that's, 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 has, that has a pull to the world. So we haven't arrived yet, but it's near when these mortal bodies will be changed to immortality. That's what he's speaking of. The final phase of our redemption is drawing nigh. That's something to shout about. My wife won't have to get another knee replacement in the kingdom of heaven. 
She'll have that bionic body, just like me. My back hurts, everything hurts, but so what? You know, sometimes people, especially around my family, I'm getting older, and they'll say, hey, you got a birthday. You feel old, you feel this, you feel that. And this is what I always tell them. I say, you know what? Some people didn't live to see 61. So I'm happy that I'm still here. When I'm 75, I'll be saying, some people didn't make it to 75, but I'm still here. So I'm going to be here as long as the Lord wants me to. I'm glad. I'm thankful. God is good. But still, in all of that, we must remember that we're passing through. And God has an eye on us, you guys. He has an eye on us. Not to scrutinize us. He's not like that. But he has an eye on us for good. He wants to bless. Paul says, verse 12, the night is far spent. Been over 2,000 years waiting. The day is at hand. The Greek says the day has drawn near and stands present. There's no distance between this day and the day that Christ can return. Paul says this in Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. It's imminent. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2, but concerning the times and seasons, there it is again, chronos and kairos. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Jesus, as he signs off his last letter, while John dictates in Revelation chapter 2, he says three times, Behold, I come quickly. Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He says in verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Strive to live holy, godly lives. And then he says in verse 20, reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. And even so come Lord Jesus. So the position of the first century church was the eminence of Christ's return. It wasn't until Oregon, and he wrote a lot of good things, but he was wrong about this. It wasn't until he came on the scene and began to start writing about, no, 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 the church doesn't need to look for the eminent return of Christ that you get these teachings from Darby, that the, the church has to go through the tribulation period, and there's a, 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 a mid-tribulation period. But from the first century church, Scripture tells us, Paul says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he could come back at any time. And that's what the Scripture teaches. Just think about this. In, if you're a post-tribulationist, I feel sorry for you. But 
the day is planned out in the seven-year tribulation period. There's no surprise in the seven-year tribulation period when Christ comes back. You count down from the temple. When the temple is erected, I think it's 3,400-something days from the temple when it's set up that Christ returns. That's that's not going to be a surprise to anyone. But he speaks throughout the New Testament of the imminent return of Christ. Paul thought Christ was coming back so much in his time. What did he tell the the Corinthians church? Hey, you young bucks, don't even worry about getting married. Don't even get married. And then you'll be worrying about how you can please your wife, and your wife will be worrying about how you please you, and and you're going to get your minds off Christ because he's coming soon. And if they would have did that, there would be no church. My point is, Paul was even then looking for the imminent return of Christ. Matter of fact, once again, Peter says we should and it's good to look for the imminent return of Christ because all those that do do that, we do what? We purify ourselves because we're living holy lives because we know he can come back at any time. That's why Jesus tells that parable of that wicked servant. The Lord delays his coming. And what did he do? Begin to beat his servants and get drunk with the drunkards. Oh, he's not coming back soon. I've got time to party. I've got time to to do some things I shouldn't do. He's not coming back. And he came. And he says he gave him a part with the wicked. Now, you can figure that one out any way you want to relate it, but it's not good in my eyes. So there is the imminent return of Christ. And if we truly believe that, Paul is saying here, we will present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. He says the dead is at hand. The release of joy is at hand. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more sickness. That's the day I'm longing for. That's the day I'm looking for. And because of that, he says in the latter part of verse 12, therefore, let us cast off, not just throw it away. Paul says, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Like Chris was saying, we put things off, we put things on. And then he says, let us walk properly as in the day. In other words, 24-7, whether we're in the broad, in broad daylight or not. And you know, in broad daylight, if you're walking outside, everyone can see you. Paul is saying, live like that. It's like, I guess I can use the mall for an example. It's like when I... Anthony and I would go to the mall as a little child, and he would begin to act up sometimes. And I said, boy, I can't get you now, but I'm going to get you when you get home. Because, you know, if you spank somebody, especially today, they're going to call defects on you. But I would tell him, wait till I get home. That's what the Lord is saying. Live in the light, the broad daylight. Live like that because there's some things you might not do when it's broad daylight, when it's broad daylight in the darkness. 
when no one's around. Paul, uh, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, don't live like that. Because we serve an all-seeing God anyway. So remember that. Cast off the works of darkness. Verse 13, not in revelry, that's rioting or partying and drunkenness. He says, not in lewdness, that's fornication, any sexual relationship outside of marriage. He says, and lust, that word lust is unbridled lust. Catch this. That's everything in the alphabet. I hope y'all caught that. All of the alphabets, that's what it is. He says, not in strife and envy. Those things go together. If you're envious of something or someone, sooner or later, there will be strife. But in contrast to that, if I put on and put off, like Paul is saying, I will live a holy life. Matter of fact, Colossians says this. This is where he gets it from. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. I'll never forget I bought a, a six-cassette tape of Erwin Lutzer about this verse right here. And he, as he was telling us about put off this and put off that, he said, I had a problem with lying growing up. I couldn't believe Erwin Lutzer had a problem with lying. But I, then I said, hey, he's a human like everybody else. And he said, what the Lord told me to do, especially in a crowd and you're talking and, and just kicking it with people, he says, the Lord said, if I told a lie, exaggerating or anything, he said, go back and tell the truth right then and there. And he said, that broke me up from lying. That's what Paul is saying. We're putting off and we're putting on. He says this, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on the tender mercies of kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, that's the motivation. So you also must do. I run into friends sometimes, and, and I, I, I hear they've, they've given their life to Christ, and I'll ask them a question, well, how are you doing? And right away, people begin to tell you, well, I don't drink anymore. I don't run around on my girlfriend anymore. I don't smoke pot anymore. And they begin to tell you what they don't do. That's, that's not enough. It's not about being legalistic. I want to know who you are. And I don't know who you are until you tell me what you do. That's what Paul is saying. We not only take off, we put on. It's almost, I forget if it's a parable or Jesus is, might be making an analogy. I think it's a parable when he says, 
the, the, uh, there was an unclean spirit in this man, and the Lord cast them out, and the guy didn't replace that unclean spirit with anything. He did a 12-step program. He did something like that. That's not enough. And what happened? The demon comes back. Not only does he goes into the house, but with seven more. And the latter end was worse than the first. Paul says here, it's not enough to just give up things. That's not enough. You must be born again. You must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you begin to work that renewed mind day in by the word of God and by prayer and by fellowshipping with the believers. You can't get away from it. That's what he says. Verse 14. The worship team can come up. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That word provision, I love it. It's a, it means a military headquarter. It means where you set up shop. And what Paul is saying, when you make provision for the flesh, you begin to set up shop. When I'm going to have that rendezvous. You begin to set up shop. You, just, you never do it automatically. You begin to plan for it. Make, he says, make no provision for the flesh. You begin to set up shop when I can get away by myself and watch pornography. Paul says, no. Cast it away and make no provision for the flesh. The example most people give is when... God tells Abraham to do what? King James says, cast out the bondwoman. Same word here, cast out the bondwoman. He does that, and you remember what he gave her? A little thing of water and a little bread. And that's how you do the flesh. You can't even feed it. You cast it out and starve it to death. And while you're starving it to death, you starve it by the word of God and in prayer. That's what it takes for some people to break bondages that they've had for years. But do we want to do that? Do we want to present our bodies truly as living sacrifices, which, our, which is our reasonable worship? The Bible says, we know this, that Jesus Christ had nowhere to lay his head. Lay his head, the word in Hebrew is bowed down. New King James says he had nowhere to, to bow down. Then if you read the, the gospel of John, he says when he got on the cross, he bowed his head. He found his home. He found a place to worship. And boy, did he worship. That's what he's calling for us to do. Worship him by presenting our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to do those things. Let's pray. Father, 
I want to be, and I know my brothers and sisters want to be everything that you've called us to be. Lord, and I know we're swimming upstream. But Lord, you allowed it. You made it like that. You, you are allowing the prince of the power of the air to rule this world. So every child of God has to swim upstream. So Lord, let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk in broad daylight, even when it's night, even when we're at home by ourselves. Let us understand that it's broad daylight because it's high time to cast off the works of darkness because Jesus is at hand. Father, let us not become lethargic. And even if we are now, Lord, give us grace to wake up. Give us grace to be everything you've called us to be, Father God. Because one day we're going to have to give an accounting of what we've done down here. Yes, if we're believers, we're believers. But I don't want you to tell me, look at all I had in store for you. But because you didn't present your body a living sacrifice, because you compromised here and you compromised there, that you're just going to be playing with that Latonka truck all your, for eternity in the kingdom. And some may say that's okay. But as Corson says, I want my joy in the kingdom to be a, a big wine barrel full of joy. Let us all strive for that, Father, because of what you've done for us. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're not asking us as a favor. You're commanding us, which is our reasonable worship. Give us grace to do those things. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. May we stand, please, and close with the song.